there's this story, and it's as old as time. And the story goes something like this. Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there were all sorts of extenuating circumstances within which a male character and a female character are thrown together by fate. If this were a Hollywood screenplay, this moment is called the meet-cute. As the story progresses, we see the characters fall in love, and it's funny, and it's quirky, and then there's a moment of upset. One momentary disruption, and there's usually like a sad montage thrown in the middle of that. And then finally one of them realizes that they can't live without the other one, so they go chasing after their one true love. You complete me, and I'm gonna play you the song on the boombox, or I'm gonna show up in a limousine with the red flowers and the opera song playing in the background, and then the credits roll. Well, obviously we know that these Hollywood versions of love, of the love map, aren't really the terrain of the experience of love in day-to-day partnership relationships, or marriage. But those stories have become so ingrained that we don't even realize how much they're impacting our expectations. Those stories mixed with the cultural conditioning of where we grew up, of our family of origin, or even religious backgrounds are all in the mix. But knowingly or unknowingly, we're all still kind of driving for that happy ending when the credits roll. And if it's not riding off into the sunset, we think we've done something wrong, or that there's something wrong with our relationship. Or if our relationship doesn't work, there's something wrong with us. I know that I had to work through a lot of feelings of guilt around the end and the dissolution of my marriage. I felt like I was falling through the relational map story of success in marriage. Even as I was falling through to my own freedom, I was falling apart, but I was moving toward my own wholeness. And this is how we learn, right? We learn through these experiences. So perhaps we can begin to unknow this relational map story of success and failure. Maybe it's all just growth. And since my divorce, I've experienced this in in dating in my relationships this ongoing learning experience of unknowing the story and the map and discovering the things that were really actually driving me driving my choices which is why i really wanted to have today's guest on the show on unknowing mark groves is a human connection specialist and the founder of create the love so he's a speaker a writer a motivator creator and collaborator he describes himself as a bridge between the academic and the human inviting people to explore the good bad downright ugly and beautiful sides of connection he says he's an emotional translator empowering people to give words to their feelings step into their courage and create a life and love they'll look back on with a resounding fuck yes <laughs> now i don't know about you but that's pretty compelling and i came across mark because somebody had recommended that i take one of his courses a dating course and i know what you're thinking because it's exactly what i thought when i first heard it which was like who needs a dating course that just sounds so cheesy And yet, I'm telling you, this was like mysticism for relationships. I learned so much about myself 
and I can't recommend it enough, but I won't need to after this conversation. You'll want to take it too. So with that, let's jump right in to episode four of season two of Unknowing with Mark Groves. So Mark, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I have to say, I've been a fan of yours for some time, but like a little bit of a reticent fan because because I had a friend tell me that I needed to take this dating 101 course. I was like, I don't need to take a dating course. Like, what are you talking about? And then I started following you on social media. And every time a video of yours would pop up, I would just be like, God damn it, Mark. Like you would just be speaking right into issues that I was having, or you were addressing things that had happened to me in relationships. And so I'm just really excited to talk about how we can unknow what we think we know about relationships and how important that is. So welcome to Unknowing. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I appreciate the kind words. Excited to be here. Even though I was a reticent fan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I have a lot of those, which is fine. That's right. That's right. So I like to start each show by asking my guest about the map that you were handed growing up. I think each of us were given a particular terrain and parameters to make sense of our reality, and it really shaped us. It really got us started in a particular direction. So what constituted the terrain and landmarks and the map that you were handed? Yeah, I mean, my so I grew up in Canada. I was born in Calgary. And, you know, I say that because I think so much of the cultural climate has an impact on, you know, maybe our own values, our own principles. And my mom is an immigrant from Ireland. My dad was, I think, third or fourth generation North American. And my father was divorced before my mom. Um, He met my mom after and he had a daughter with his first wife. And so, you know, just unconsciously, there was that relationships can end, divorce can happen, and you can find love again after that. You know, you don't realize all these things that are being taught to you just by the way you're moving through the world. Mm. Uh, But I look back and, you know, so my sister, I never knew her as anything but my sister. And, you know, even though she was a half sister, in my Mom, because she had a hard time when she first moved to Canada integrating as an immigrant, you know, every couple of weeks on Sundays, we would have different families from around the world over at our house because my mom would want to be able to help integrate them into the community. And so, I mean, I learned openness. My mom speaks seven languages, so (laughs) we grew up taking French immersion. So language, culture, just being open to all people. I was really blessed because my father is emotionally intelligent. He was the one, and my mom is too, but you know, it's, I say that because it's often your father isn't the person you're going to, to talk to about your breakups or your, Mm. your love life or your heartbreak or whatever it is. And my father was the person that I went to for those things. And that really gave me a, a different perspective. And at the same time, you know, I was playing sports and so part of that world where, you know, the roadmap I ultimately got though, I went to Catholic school and I'm sure for anyone who I consider myself a recovering Catholic because of Mm. the roadmap that I got was not the one I wanted, which I think is very true for most people. It was get married by 25 to 27, have kids by 30, make sure you go to college, do something like finance, medicine, do something that can pay the bills. Don't become an artist. Don't become like none of that is realistic. You need to take care of a family and be a provider, be able to take care of your your wife and your kids. 
And, you know, that roadmap, I lived it till, till everything melted down. <laughs> I want to ask you about that moment because I find that these moments of rupture are the moments when either the map is burned or tears and we fall through into another reality that's always been there, but we just didn't have language for or the experience to recognize. And so what was the moment of rupture for you where you kind of leapt off your map, the map you were handed? Yeah, you know, I have a buddy. He was the first guy in our group to get married and he was the first to get divorced in his early 30s. And it was his wife had cheated on him. And he said to me, and the reason I share this is because I, I thought it was such a good um, reference to what it feels like. He said to me that I feel like I was on the train of life that everyone else is on, like in a subway. And then I got kicked off the train and I was standing on the platform watching the train go by, not even realizing I was ever on a train. Mm. And, and he said, you know, I didn't have the choice. I was kicked off the train. And for me, it was at 27, getting engaged to a really wonderful woman, but not wanting to be engaged, not knowing why, you know, not being ready. When I went to other people about it, the majority of the people would say, you're just afraid of commitment. Right. You're just a guy. You know, you're just supposed to, I guess, put, get the shackles on for the old ball and chain and enter marriage. And I remember thinking like, well, maybe it will all change when I get engaged. My anxiety, the fear I had. And it didn't. The moment I got engaged, it felt different than I was taught that it would feel. Mm -hmm. And really the sort of moment that came was that I realized that I was taking someone else who I cared about deeply down a path of incongruence for me. Like I had posted about my story on this website that was called The Runaway Bride. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately, but it was for people who were uncertain or, you know, needed a space to share. And I shared my story on there. And what I found was so different is that normally when you share your story or your fears with people you know, Often their advice comes from the place of trying to actually mitigate the impact your choice might have on them, even unconsciously. You know, it's like if I left her, then anyone who had unstable relationships would be afraid that it might cause a ripple effect. I would destabilize friendship groups, my own family, her family, you know. So I remember posting it on there and it was so beautiful because everybody who gave me advice didn't care what I chose. Mm. And um, this one woman asked me three questions. Uh, if, if she left you tomorrow, would you be okay? And I was like, I'd feel relieved, you know, cause I think there is an aspect of like, Hey, if your partner leaves you, do you know that you'd be okay? That can be a very healthy response. Um, but this was different. It was like relief mm -hmm. a million pounds gone off my shoulders. Second one was, what would it be like waiting for her? What would you feel like waiting for her at the altar? Whatever your altar is. And I was like, oh, man, my stomach hurt. Like, just thinking mm. about doing it. Uh, and none of this a reflection of her. That's what was so challenging. And the last question, which was the one that really shifted me, was could someone else love her better? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the follow-up question to that is, do you want to? You know, do you want to be the one to step up? Because if you leave a gap, you know, ultimately people will find someone who will fill that gap. And... I didn't want to, and I didn't know why. And that was that was very conflicting because I had lived everything I was taught. You know, I went to college. I was a pharmaceutical rep at that time. I, she, she's incredible, smart, athletic, all the things. And, 
you know, had a house, had all the things. And I was like, wait, you know, I think there's so much more. Is there more to life? Like, it feels like there's more to life. And I had never considered being here for more than just being a provider or just being some, you know, bunch of cells put together to fulfill a role that I was taught to fulfill, not realizing there's so much potential that was living outside of me that I had not stepped into, you know. Yeah. And it, it's devastating when these ruptures happen because in the midst of them, it just feels like everything we thought we knew is being burned and destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> and there's that vacuum of what the fuckery as you're like, okay, all right, now what do I do with this? But, you know, the training that so many of us have received is almost like an, to put us in an automatic unconscious state. Yeah. And in a passive state of what to expect from life. And I think in my own experience in divorce, but also in my experience of, of spiritual transformation, it's these moments of suffering that really open something, open us up to a, a different way of perceiving. Um, so I want to ask you about the foundational premise of Create the Love that you you know, uh, force of education and helping other people discover the moreness underneath the relational maps that so many of us have been trained to just think is like, this is what you do. And then you go to here and then you get married and then this is what happens. So what was the moment that you decided that you wanted to dedicate your life to, to that moreness and, and to freeing other people into seeing and experiencing that moreness in relationships? Well, when, when that engagement ended, it was interesting because I, you know, a lot of people unconditionally loved me and were like, great, we're here for you, whatever you need. We're proud of you. And then a lot of other people were like, you hurt her. You're shithead. You're this. You're just afraid of commitment. You're not a man, you know? And it was interesting because like in the moment that I felt more connected to myself than I had been and since I could remember and more proud of myself, I also was at the face of not belonging which felt really like an interesting contrast. And I wouldn't have been able to verbalize it then, but it was like the beginning of feeling like you belong to you at the cost of belonging to a group is, yeah, it's it's a very, it's foreign because in a lot of ways, you know, as you said, you know, we're like taught this, this way of being, this way of moving through the world. And if you do that, you'll get applause and you'll fit in and you'll keep the peace. And, you know, it's also ultimately like we separate somewhat from our soul when we choose this other path and, you know, we're socialized and cultured to do it. And so this space that that lives between who we truly are and who we're being, I think, is one of our greatest sources of suffering. And I started to see that when that relationship ended. I had been under this premise or idea that all relationships last forever and they stay happy. Hmm. And I was like, wait, well, that's not fucking true. Because now I started to look at friends whose parents divorced. And, you know, I started to see all these things. And I was like, there are so many people who have been together for their whole lives who hate each other. And yet we claim that to be relational success. Right. And so I started to see like being together and staying together became the ultimate relational outcome rather than fulfillment, expansion within the relationship, growth. Now, granted, we're sort of in a, challenge because evolutionarily it served us for certain and and still can to stay together (laughs) you know and to have a provider and to have a caretaker and now we want so much more from our relationships we want so much more from ourselves you know and and so 
we are taking these evolutionary skills, which are really just about being beside each other, not about being connected to one another. Um, and we're having to cultivate a whole new set of skills, you know, that are about intimacy and handling conflict and learning how to listen and understand. And that birthplace was like, just through my own work, I started, I used to study relationships from a sales perspective because I was a sales rep. How do I change people's behavior? I studied that like a madman, you know, how do I manipulate behavior ultimately? And then when I went through that, I started to see like, why am I so good at talking about everything but my feelings? Like that doesn't make logical sense. Like I have the skill set, but I don't use it in this one space. And in a many spaces, not just romantic, but like handling conflict anywhere but work was challenging for me. I'd shut down, my nervous system would get activated. And I went back to school, studied positive psychology. That felt like just like this, finally a science to what I really wanted to learn was like, what is the... What is at the core of human achievement? And mm. that same skill that says, hey, I'm going to start this business or I'm going to do this thing, follow this passion, is the exact same leap. It's the exact same leap into unknown territory of being on the edge of how you relate. You know, right. when, you, when you get defensive the first time you stop and you say, hey, I can see some truth in what you're saying. That's a transformative moment because you're moving beyond what you were taught. And so the birthplace of Create the Love was really from like, I started to learn all these things. And I was like, why is no one taught this? Like this, was, it was blowing my fucking mind, like what I was learning and yeah. how much shit I had not seen. Like someone asked me the other day, what is the most fascinating thing to you about psychology? And I was like, that until we learn that we even have an unconscious mind, almost all of our decisions will be made by it and we will call it fate. Like <laughs> that to me is the most fascinating thing. Like I look back and I'm like, I was making all the choices I made up until that moment where I, you know, I would say I awakened in some sense. And yet I wasn't, you know, it was like, I just was mm -hmm. doing what I was told. This is what a good life is, but is it? And I think that's what's so fascinating is like, I started to see like, these people are going through divorces and breakups and they think they're broken because of it. Yeah. And I was like, I wasn't broken. I was liberated by that. And that's right. that really inspired was to change this narrative of like, you are not fucking broken. Like a broken heart is one that doesn't work, doesn't love again, you know, but to feel the pain of a heartbreak is actually pretty evident that you love, you know, like it's, it's evidence that your heart is working exactly as it should and maybe you just need some boundaries around what you allow in and how you behave may need to change. And so the birthplace of it was like, really came from a place of anger, you know, first of like, why is no one telling the fucking truth about relationships? Like they end, people cheat, people lie, we cheat, we lie, we have dysfunctional behaviors, you know, and so... I was like, create the love. It originally was create the love you want, but I was like, that sounds cheesy and as long. I really had a hard time putting love in the title of what my business was because I was still operating with like, should I be a consultant? Should I, you know, like, again, more of the having to peel away. The only way to make this work as a consultant, the only way is to hide it through business relationships. The only way, and it was like, no, just live out loud. Just put it all out, which, pff, I mean, still learning how to do that. It's, it's challenging. Yeah, but it's so profound to me that, you know, what you were saying earlier, the moment when we realize that 
choosing ourselves is sometimes having to choose the end of a relationship. And that sense of like, I have to belong to myself or else what do I have? Who am I? But that fall, that trust fall into that deeper Mm. belonging to ourselves, like you said, it comes at a cost and it comes at a major disruption. And um, I want to ask you, you know, I I love so much of what you just shared. It's like, I want to dig in deeper to this because... You know, I'm a fan of Jungian psychology. I actually love James Hollis. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he has a book called The Eden Project, The Death of the Magical Other, Mm -hmm. in which he completely strips away the idea of completion in another person and lays out the premise of projections, you know, how our unconscious is like projecting stuff, how we're driven by our unconscious. So I want to ask you about how you describe the unconscious and our projections, because I found in general, as I was going through your dating course, it was like you had such a great way of laying like some pretty deep concepts in a way that was both accessible and also not fucking precious. It was just very like, here's what we do. (laughs) This is what happens. So how do you describe um, the role of projection and how the unconscious is really driving so much of our programming when it comes to relationships? I mean, so much of what we do relationally or what we avoid relationally is due to the unconscious belief that relationships will work out and be a certain way. And often that is not a good thing. You know, like when I ask people to finish the sentences, when I let people love me, they, usually it'll be betray me, lie to me, leave me, don't love me back. And then if we go with when I love people, I, and that often is betray myself, become a people pleaser, lose me. And you can see all of these are outcomes that were de- probably defined in early childhood. You know, they were probably relationships with parents, but they could be uh, 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 where the story became that outcome could be at any point in our lives. And what I find then is, is we create this upper limit in how we love. Because ultimately, if I'm afraid that everyone's going to betray me, then what's the point in even dating an available person? You know, what's the point in me not sabotaging everything or choosing someone who will repeat the story that I get betrayed when I get close to people? And so what I find is that because of this ultimate pain or wound that occurred right before the moment or right in the moment, we sort of stretch the capacity of our hearts to what we know we can tolerate. So I'm still playing the game. Mm -hmm. I'm still in relationship, but I'm not actually fully conscious of it. And I'm not even conscious that I'm repeating these patterns. And ultimately, we've also taken this this moment of pain and put it in a box and not looked at it. You know, it's often the source of our addictions. It's often the source of um, distractions with social media or whatever it might be. Not realizing that the very gold and wisdom to moving through that moment and surpassing that upper limit is the wisdom that is held in the experience. Is like, if this experience could teach me, what skill would I need to establish? What, what would I need to find my voice? Would I need boundaries? Would I need to access rage and anger? Would I need to access softness and gentleness? You know, so that projected future that we often don't even know we have is actually guiding our lives. And not to mention the beliefs we have about love. You know, what we observed about our parents, what we observed about our culture, what we observed, what messages were we were taught about whatever gender we are. 
and how that should show up in relationship, what sexuality we have, you know, all these different things. And when I think about that in the context of, like the majority of us don't even realize that is really steering the ship, you know, and the unconscious is, you know, depending on, on who you hear it from, you know, it's like, between 95 to 99% of what we do is unconscious. You know, the reality though, is that like marketers have always known that, you know, marketers have known that governments have known that they know that they can steer our unconscious and access that through fear, through unconscious priming, you know, like if you're, there's an interesting study where if you're holding a cold drink and you're asked about people at a party, you'll judge them more as cold. If you're in an unstable chair and you're asked to judge, <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, if you're in an unstable chair and you're asked to judge relationships, you're more likely to consider them unstable. So it shows you how simple <laughs> yet complex our our psychology is. Because you know, like we can have very complex psychology. However, if our nervous system is activated, you go right to you know fear based responses. And so that was probably a long answer to a simple question, but I think I did. I get it. No, I I loved it. I loved it because you know you're getting into some of the work that this awakening requires. Right? It requires the courage to really look deeper, and to look deeper, we have to have a stance of curiosity, not judgment. Curiosity. Because the, it's only through that kind of compassionate, resonant curiosity that we can look at these things and say, oh, oh, that's what that is, without just this spiral of, of self-attack. And I, I want to ask you about a little bit about attachment styles, because this was like, you know, when you said earlier, like, how come everybody doesn't know this shit? Like, this was one of the <laughs> things for me that I was like, how are they not teaching this in like, in high too. school? And why are they like, <laughs> understand. So, so I discovered, you know, through the course that you're looking at a big time avoidant over here. And I think one of the fears that I have to work with in relationship is the fear of engulfment. Mm. You know, my favorite definition of love is by the poet Rilke, where he describes love as two solitudes that greet and protect one another's borders. And I think because there was a lot in my childhood and even in my marriage where I just felt kind of overtaken and I was actually feeding into that process. I was creating that accessibility or that um, self-abandonment myself. Yeah. But some of it too, Mark, is like I'm a single mom and a creative and being an independent woman and the ways in which I've experienced men wanting someone. They want that codependent. They want that mother, wife, lover. They want that everything in one person. So I want to ask you about attachment styles and then how to discern between what is really going on when, like, for instance, in my case, when you encounter that edge, how much of that is a healthy boundary that I have, like using me as as an example, and how much of that is cultural conditioning of how much people are expecting still, you know, from a partner and a wife? Yeah. I mean, what a great pathway to inquiry. Our expectations, I think, of relationship till we sort of wake up to them are that they complete us, you know, like if my relationship status and I'm, you know, feel like a failure when my relationship ends, then on some level, my completeness or my wholeness comes from that person, you know, because if they leave, then now I don't feel good about myself. Then that means that having them made me feel good about myself. And so I said a while, a long time ago, I remember writing about this, just that 
like the universe will take anything from you that completes you so that you can realize your worth doesn't live there. <laughs> that in the space they were in that might feel dark and heavy and hard and grieving and sadness. I find a lot of that grief is is actually old grief because we've never fully stepped into that space ourselves. We've been seeking someone to be the the puzzle piece. But we are that puzzle piece. And then when you fill that puzzle piece, you're not longing for someone to fill that space. You're actually looking for someone from a complete space. You're not needing someone to be the final icing on the cake to your worth. You are worthy. And then you seek someone that matches the level of admiration and belonging you have to yourself. So, you know, in the context of attachment styles, there's quite an overlap into codependency and even boundaries. So, um, that work was done by Jonathan Balby originally. Sue Johnson is sort of like an attachment master now. Sylvie Kokashin is incredible. She teaches attachment styles. Um, and, and attachment is, so So the work was done originally looking at a mom is in a room with her child. child mom leaves the room, mom comes back, and they ascertain or look at how does the baby respond to mom's leaving and coming back. So the first one, mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's upset, crying, goes back to mom's side, won't leave mom's side. So, you know, it, when you leave, I'm afraid you won't come back is sort of the underlying feeling. That's anxious attachment style. Mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like reunites with mom, goes back to playing, baby trusts mom. That's secure attachment style. Mom leaves, mom comes back, baby's like, eh, I didn't even notice you were gone. You know, like, no big deal. <laughs> but, but physiologically, that baby is going through the same thing as the anxious child, you know, high heart rate, sweating. I don't know if babies even sweat, but the, the, (laughs) the interesting thing or sort of the defining characteristic of a secure attachment is that my partner's needs matter as much as my own, not more than my own that's anxious, not less than my own that tends to be avoidant. Avoidance is broken down into two types. There's dismissive avoidant and fearful avoidant. Dismissive avoidant is more like I would have been more dismissive avoidant when I was in my late 20s, kind of cocky, into one night stands, believes that when people get too close, they're needy. Um, It sort of, it falsifies as a high level of self-worth. If you look at narcissism, which a lot of avoidance gets called narcissism these days, but narcissism is like the far, far extent of severe attachment, injury, and avoidance. And then fearful avoidant is someone who's been traumatized, experienced trauma. And that is like, I really desperately want love. I want closeness. But when I get close, I'm afraid people are going to hurt me. Mm. Often these messages live in the unconscious. They're not even conscious. You know, it's like, why do I desire love? And then when I get it, I run for the hills, you know, because a lot of people say, well, can you be both? Mm. Can you be anxious and avoidant? Yeah, you certainly can. Right, right, right. Because the reason you can do it is because it's so easy to pivot between insecure attachment styles. Because in order to become secure is different. It's easier for me to just go to the other one. And when you think about the overlap of codependency, people who, you know, codependency is one person has tons of needs and the other person's job is to take care of those needs. And both of them are usually living in the same roles that they had in childhood. And actually to complete the idea about attachment styles, because it's relevant to this, is anxious people are afraid of space. They're afraid that there is space between them and another. Avoidant people need space. You know, as you said, like engulfment. So if, if space gets too taken yeah. apart there's a or, or taken away, there's a fear. You know, like when I don't have space in relationship, I am afraid 
you know, blank is going to happen. Right. And I'm curious what yours is. Like, I'll lose me. I'm... Yeah, no, I think in my situation, it always felt like there was a takeover that would happen and it, uh, a hijacking of all of my creative energy that then had to be employed in just maintaining the other's mm. needs. So, I, and then there wasn't room for me to be a creative right. or to kind of be individuated. So some of that I think came from that experience of like the hijacking of selfhood because I hadn't learned that I had permission to be individuated to begin with. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like when I get close, I lose me. I lose my needs. I lose my wants. I lose the ability to be in my sovereign self. Right. And, you know, so much of like adults who caretake. I mean, you got to think of all the social conditioning here too. Like women are going to more often be the one who's caretaking. There's so much social conditioning to that. So much worth is stored in making sure the family stays together, taking care of the family, you know, all those things. And a man's worth can live in the same thing, providing all that kind of stuff, not having emotion. Uh, and, and men tend to be more avoidant and women tend to be more anxious. Again, this isn't black and white. There's so much gray in this, but that's just sometimes more true than, than not. The space of codependence and that need caretaking is like often the kids, when we're kids, if we took care of our mom's needs or our dad's needs, or there was an alcoholic in the family, an addict, someone with a chronic illness, where the the family oscillated around one person, what happens is, is then the child only knows how to recognize needs in another. Like their role in the family is to take care of this person. And the role of maybe everyone in the family, if they took care of their younger siblings, made food for them, they're often, it's not about them. They couldn't develop needs. And actually their worth and their safety was sourced by taking care of other people. And mm -hmm. it also can be that, hey, you know, if my parents weren't around and I had a need, who's there to listen to it? If no one's there to listen to it, then I have no one to hear it. And so we can either become so engulfed in chasing and wanting to heal and help other people because we get our worth from it um, and we get our role from it and it's familiar. Or we can become an island. You know, I don't have any needs. I don't need you, right? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Neither do any of my friends who are listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> well, and that one's interesting because that's sort of brought, you know, I'd say in the 90s and 2000s, uh, I grew up mainly in the 90s. Very much the message was like, be independent. Don't need a man. Don't. That's right. Right. And, and yep. what happens is, is that is a beautiful message in response to the total loss of self that occurred in, you know, in the late 60s, divorce really skyrocketed because all of a sudden they said, hey, you know what? You don't, you can actually get divorced if you want to. It doesn't have to get approved by a court. Oh, well, that's really nice. At that point, you needed to be separated for three years. I'm talking about Canadian law, so I'm sure there's something similar in the United States. You also have the sexual revolution. You've got a lot of things all happening at the same time. The feminist revolution, the first wave. And then in the late 80s, they changed the policy in Canada. So instead of three years, it's one year, the separation. And people are like, well, one year, I can do one year. So divorce has skyrocketed again. And so you saw, you know, children watch their mothers be stranded or not even be able to leave relationship because of dependency. And often the um, father's using financial power to to a, in some way as a form of abuse and control. And so like who as a child of that wouldn't want to be independent or for men to actually 
not have boundaries because they're afraid they don't want to be controlling. They don't want to um, become like the men they've mm -hmm. seen in the news and on TV. And toxic masculinity is a whole other messaging. But so you have this whole movement that said, be independent, don't need anyone. But to a child's mind, it needs so much more gray than that. It needs, don't lose yourself. Like, make sure that mm -hmm. you can take mm -hmm. care of you. Make sure that there you have boundaries and, and a foundation. Same for, for any human, any gender. And, and so we sort of like look at, as you said, the map, the map that encodes us. And we wake up, I think often we wake up in our like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and we're like, holy fuck, how did I get here? <laughs> and then we're mad at the map, <laughs> right? And we should be. Right. But at the same yeah. time, like it's never too late to change. It's never too late to step into your power and your potential. And that avoidant attachment and anxious and all that stuff, they're ways of systemizing how we relate. They're just ways of making it, you know, when we read attached the book or take an attachment course, we're like, holy shit, that's me. Because mm -hmm. humans are not really that complex in how they relate. You know, like ultimately we are always looking for safety and security in our relationships. If we learned that chaos was normal, then we will associate, you know, with the people we loved as children, we will then be oddly attracted to chaos. It will be oddly normalized. Having a heightened nervous system will actually feel like arousal and love and butterflies. Oddly, we also think, we also say we get butterflies when we're anxious. Well, that's a pretty important message to, as a human, to recognize when your body is throwing up signs being like, yo, like when people say, like, I don't know why I miss red flags. Well, if your childhood was filled with red flags, then <laughs> yeah. you've been, you've been taught to not see them so that yeah. life didn't hurt so much, you know? I think you posted, and I, don't, I think this was a repost, but it was, somebody said something about like, I don't know why I didn't see the red flags. And then the, or why didn't you see all the red flags? And the other person says, oh, I thought it was a carnival. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that one's so good. It is so good. But it's that conditioning and the, the willingness to turn toward ourselves with curiosity and compassion yeah. and a willingness to explore is his own map. I think as I was taking your course, I felt like I had dropped into a trap door, into a whole other terrain within myself mm. in which I was discovering all of these things and not in a way that was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're an avoidant. It was just, it was so helpful to see and then just kind of understand where that tendency had come from. So one of the things that I love that you teach, Mark, is somatic awareness and healing and self-observation and self-regulation. So when I took the course, I, you know, and I'm like a deep, like I've been practicing meditation for 15 years, you know, and like really into mysticism and contemplation. And so I'm taking your course. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, Sensei Mark, like, look at you teaching the people how to meditate. And they don't even know that you're teaching them how to meditate. But it was um, extremely helpful, and you found a way to just address it at a very practical way through through talking about the nervous system and talking about self-regulation. So why is having somatic awareness, whether that's engendered through you know simple somatic practices or a meditation practice, and that space to self-observe without judgment, why is that so critical for us in relationships? And why is that not the most foundational thing that's being taught to everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You take science and math and, 
You don't learn how to pay a bill. You don't learn how to relate. You don't learn about nutrition and health, really, on any substantial level. They show you, at least in Canada, they show you the Canadian food guide, which is like bread and milk are the best things for you. Make sure you have lots of them. You know, um, I mean, it's so important to become an observer of oneself for relating because ultimately we will continue to repeat the same communication patterns, the same, all these things, till we actually take the time to recognize one, what they are, that they're maybe challenging or dysfunctional or whatever. You know, I think one of the hardest truths we have to come to realize is like, listen, whatever relationship you're in, you choose to be in. And all of your relational outcomes are all correlated to you as the common denominator. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean life couldn't have happened and shitty things couldn't happen. We're not dismissing where we've been the experience, we've experienced being a victim. But to be in the state of like, it just happens. I just get the bad luck on partners. I have a bad version of Tinder. Everyone else has a good Tinder. Like, that's not true. We know that's not true. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's funny. is because like you could give two people Tinder and one person would find great humans and the other person would find catastrophes. So it shows you that one is coding red flags earlier and being able to identify them and the other person isn't. Mm. So it's not a flaw of oneself. It's just that we need to learn it. And much like somatics, it's being able to understand the nuances of one's nervous system response. In that world, they would call it your window of tolerance. So your window of tolerance is the space to which you can actually still use your prefrontal cortex, still use your brain, you know, in being able to problem solve. Like in some research on workplaces, when one is asked, can I give you some feedback? their brain completely shuts down as soon as they hear that because they go into fight, flight, freeze, fawn. So, you know, this is shown in, can you problem solve after in these states? No, you can't. And that's why when we're in conflict and it could be so minute, it could be like, my partner looks at me differently. I would be more prone to anxious attachment. My partner more Mm -hmm. prone to avoidance. So, and what I say by that is like when there's stress in the connection or in life, our default is to move more towards that. So because I'm more anxiously attached, when harnessed, all of these things are superpowers, right? Like all of these skill sets are superpowers. Like as an anxious person, I was able to be highly attuned to people's body language, their faces, very attuned to it. Mm. So people who are anxious can pick up on the slightest form of change in a face that someone else wouldn't even pick up. For someone who's more avoidant, they can pick up on a nervous system going off that needs, that needs completion, that that is about to be like, take care of me. Like there's a hyper attunement. Both of these, when you are empowered with them, you can pick up these things and you're like, oh man, that's why I'm so good at that. How do I use this for good? And the nervous system somatics is once you become aware of, like I see my partner's face change and I feel my body go, If I'm not aware that that is, I'm feeling, oh, this connection might not be safe right now. She might leave me. She might not choose me. Even though that's clearly not happening when we're talking about dishes or, you know, some of the garbage or whatever it might be. But to the nervous system, it's like coding, hey, when when there's disconnection with someone, if my parent is not attuned and then I, no one is there to take care of my needs. So I need to fix this or make this better or latch on or whatever the, the story might be. And so in communication, I would often get defensive when I got feedback. You know, the antidote to defensiveness I shared earlier is um, I can see some truth in what you're saying. 
And if you think about that, I've now just like received feedback instead of being like, oh, you think you're, I'm late, you're late all the time, you know, instead of me bringing it back to them. Mm-hmm. I've now just received this information and honored the exchange as sacred. Like, oh, this person is inviting me to be better. Like, I know that the intention of my partner's feedback is always to improve who I am. I then also have to hold the paradoxical feeling that who I am currently is actually not the best version of me. In taking the feedback, that is true. I have to accept that. And if I can then accept that information and grow from it, I've now just changed. But what I've also done to my nervous system is calmed it. I've calmed it because I'm not in a battle. I'm not in a war. Cold showers and meditation are spectacular for this. Meditation is, you know, you said you become the observer. You start to build that awareness. I do think that traditional meditation prepares you, but I don't think you really step into actually understanding how important it is to recognize like when you're in a conversation on a first date or on a phone or texting and you get a reply that you don't like or they say something that's off or they don't reply to you in a certain amount of time that you're able to recognize that you want to send all these texts and I'm sure we've all done that or, mm-hmm. or you don't want to talk to them for a couple of days you ghost them because you you're not observing how your nervous system is actually controlling your relational outcomes the cold showers thing, the reason I think those are so powerful and cold plunging is because literally your body's like, you're going to die. Like you're going to die <laughs> and get the fuck out of the shower. But what you learn how to do is actually recognize that your body's not dying, that you're actually safe. And you start to see the nuances in it. Breathwork, I think, is really incredible for this too. Yeah. And so, yeah, the importance is like you must get to know all of the things that actually are unconsciously determining your relational outcomes. Because in conflict, we go to the familiar way of handling conflict till we build a new bridge, a new way of being. And the only way of doing that is broadening our window of tolerance, broadening the space and our capacity. You know, like ultimately anxious people need to learn how to observe space. I would take away space from me and another because there's something in that space that I need to grieve and learn from, Mm -hmm. right? And for someone who's avoidant, They need to learn how to move closer. But again, there's something in the closeness that needs to be grieved and and learned from. And all of it will empower us, you know, all of like whatever's learned in that space. You know, I think we're so afraid of what we'll find when really all you find is you, which is really fascinating. It's such a mind fuck. It's like, I don't want to go there Mm -hmm. because in there is the younger version of me who mom wasn't attuned to. Well, go attuned to your own younger version of you. Like you filling the space with other people is just having people walk all over the younger version of you. Ironically, that's also what happens because we're boundaryless in that situation and we get walked on. So there's that. You know, what I appreciate about the way that you you bring somatic self-regulation into your work is that is precisely what you named, which is meditation can often be very disembodied or disconnected from everyday life. And that's one thing that on this podcast, like I spend a lot of time talking about, like, if your practice is making you an asshole, it's probably not a good (laughs) spiritual practice. You know what I mean? And also how we think about the word love, right? Because the word love is so popular, utilized, and means so much to so many people. It's almost like we have to unknow it Mm. to really know what we mean by that. And I think in my own unknowing of love, where I've landed is creativity. 
that for me, love is expressed in creativity because it expresses moreness, it expresses possibility, it animates potential. And so we've spent some time uh, in this conversation talking about unknowing our behavioral patterns that we've learned, you know, and unknowing even what our projections are about love. But I want to, in closing, begin to talk a little bit about unknowing what we think we know about love itself in a partner. You know, this idea that that the I would ever know who the you is, the lack of reverence toward mystery, mm, the lack right. of creative potentiality. You know, I'm a big fan of a French philosopher. Her name is Luce Irigure. She wrote this book called I Love to You. And in it, she is saying, we need to stop claiming that the I can have a, a completed and tidal sense of, of selfhood or that the you can ever be fully known and owned. And so she says, instead of saying, I love you, what we must begin to do is to have the courage to offer love in the dangerous, mysterious space between two mysteries that are ever unfolding. Mm. And this isn't how we're taught to think about love, Mark. Mm. <laughs> yeah. mm, we want the security of a knowledge that is taking the mystery away. So how do we regain or reshape or unknow what it is that we even think about love and partnership for it to be more reverent toward the mystery of unfolding and of infinite possibility and potentiality. Oh man, so many so many ways we can go here. Well, let's just go. The thing that I find, you know, we want certainty in love because I mean, on a biological level it's good to have certainty. There's no doubt about that. It's good to know that hey, when when stuff gets hard, will you be here for me? And that that is really important. That's important as a species. That's important from a secure attachment perspective. I mean, that's ultimately the question we're always asking ourselves in our relationships, no matter the type. And so there's that reality that we have to accept that that, that is something we need and source. And at the same time, how can I be in relationship to that need and also dance in the mystery, right? Like there's, it's, it's not about one or the other, it's, it can be both and. And, you know, when you look at what, has been taught to us about relationship. You know, I said that ultimately we're taught, hey, like be together forever. And if you do that, you win. And it's like, wait, but I know people who are together forever who are not winning. They're, they're sad and they get to tell everyone about their sadness. I'm sure it's the source of a lot of sales of a Cabernet Sauvignon and all the things. But, you know, the, <laughs> think about the vows that we make, we historically made when we got married. Right. Till death, it was part. Uh, honor and obey. I mean, till mm -hmm. death do us part has been fascinating to me because I really thought about okay, well, when we tend to, when we get married when we're young, and you know, relational success or outcomes tend to get better as we get older, which makes sense because we learn more and we understand more, and you know, as you said, we step into that ever space of curiosity. I start to think about it like, do they mean the death, like a mortal death, or do they mean the death of the version of you that said yes, that chose that partner? Mm. And, you know, Alexandra mm. Solomon, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, she's an incredible teacher. And I remember she wrote this, this beautiful post where she said that whether you're with the same partner or not, like your marriage, your marriage will be with many people, but it might be the same person or not. And you have to uh, basically allow each person to iterate. Like if I allow you to grow and change, it means I allow me to grow and change. 
you know, but if I don't allow you to, that means I don't allow myself to. That in some way, like when we said yes to one another in whatever capacity that was, that we are somehow saying, please stay the same, which mm. is so interesting because like one of the things in my relationship with my fiance, there was a moment in our 1.0 relationship where I just had this awareness of like, this relationship isn't a prison. If you need to go, go. And because you staying for whatever, what might be your reasons serves me in no way if it is because you believe you have to and you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And I actually love you no matter what you choose. I might be sad, I might be hurt, but I would never want someone to choose something that was not coinciding with choosing themselves. That serves me in no way. You know, Harriet Lerner has this great line where she says, if you don't feel free to come and go from a relationship, which doesn't mean you do, right? Just the awareness that you can leave if you needed to, then you will not be free to be yourself in that relationship. Yep. And so we then don't talk about the things that are hard because inevitably if staying together is the ultimate outcome, then everything that might break us up, we will avoid. That's right. Not realizing that that is actually the thing that frees us. And you know, when we start telling the full truth in relationship, which means we start telling the full truth in life, and if you start telling the full truth in life, you're going to start telling it in a relationship. You can't do one without the other. Just like you can't turn down your truth to 70% and then expect to have it in some areas of your life. You can't mm -hmm. be selective on your power. You turn it down mm -hmm. or you turn it up. And when you turn it up, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time you say, I miss us. I feel trapped. I feel whatever it might be. Or I feel like you take me for granted. I feel like I take you or whatever it is. When you present what is already there, but make what is implicit explicit, which is much like making the map explicit, making the unconscious conscious, you are presenting something that everyone already knows. Like if we feel disconnected in a relationship, then it's not just me who feels that, right? And so if I present that, I've now said this relationship honors truth always first, right? Like I've offered that as a possibility. And we completely shift the agreements that the relationship are based on in that moment. And so we, like for my partner and I, our commitment is truth above everything. Because otherwise, we won't present things that could end our relationship. We won't present, but they're the thing that liberate it. And you know, like, <laughs> I remember uh, talking to a friend who had broken up with his partner, his partner was incredible. And he said to me, you know, I came to the realization that if the relationship wasn't for me, it wasn't for her either. She just may not have known it yet. Yeah. And I think that can be a challenge, right? Like if you're in relationship and you're listening to this and you've awakened or you're starting to ask questions or you're continuing that journey and your partner isn't, well, we also have to recognize that if we're changing the agreements that the relationship was based upon, we still need to have space for the fears that are created by the change of the agreements. Like I remember one, um, I worked with this couple where the guy was really stepping into his passions. He was starting to work out and he was doing all these things. And she was like, he doesn't prioritize us. He doesn't do this. And he was like, I couldn't prioritize us mm. more. But what was happening when we got down to the root of it was that she was resentful that she wasn't prioritizing herself. She had turned down, you know, for both of them had turned down their torches to be in relationship together, which is really fucked up to think. Like we turn yeah. down our potential to
to keep another person comfortable, to maintain the agreements that this relationship is actually a place that I hide, actually a place that I am not all of me, as opposed to like the relationship should be what fertilizes your growth, what invites your growth, what expands you, what actually helps you realize your potential. You know, and and when she made that realization, she was like, it's not him. Holy shit. I'm not doing things I love and I blame him. And now I resent him that he is. Meanwhile, I could just go do that thing, you know, but it's so fascinating because like a lot of our expansion will sometimes take us away from people. And ultimately it will bring us back to the ones we're meant to be brought back with. But, you know, I don't think you can actually suppress your growth without getting sick. I don't. I don't think once you once you get an awareness, pretending it's not there is impossible. You know, I remember reading this book from Paul Selig called The Book of Truth. And in it, he said, when you make an awareness of a role you've played, you're invited to change that. And he said, it's like being a fish that is living in an aquarium and learns about the ocean and goes back to the aquarium and Oof. pretends they don't know about the ocean, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's making me think about in the process of unknowing what we think we know is a discovery of a whole new way of knowing that's so much deeper. Uh, it's a wholeness, a relational wholeness. I want to say as we wrap up here that the discovery of the last six years since my divorce of my life, which has coincided with an exploration of mysticism and spirituality and um, transformation, and also, also even recently, the unknowing of the tank, the aquarium that I had put myself in, in terms of, I must have a job that does this, and I must always work in an institution that does this. And in the last couple years, learning about the ocean of potentiality as I have recentered the creative expressions mm -hmm. of my life and really given them room for the first time. All of these things have been a series of unknowing, unknowing that felt uncomfortable, a discomfort that revealed a profound creative possibility. Mm. And I want to end by asking you about what your edge of unknowing is these days. What keeps you honest, Mark, in terms of really living on the edge of your own maps and having the courage to keep trust falling into the more beyond what it is that you know? Hmm. Well, first, that, that thought of creativity and love coinciding. You know, it's so true because how do you create a love you've never lived if you're not always doing things you've never done? Like, how do you create a painting you've never painted? If you're not willing to draw in places you've never drawn and move in ways you've never moved or speak in ways you've never spoken, how would you know? And really, we can taste the ever-moving depths of love that I don't even think can be defined because it continues to move. You know, it continues to change with each iteration of us and each skill set and as we soften and open and you know, I don't think there's any awakening or any transformation or any heartbreak that doesn't lead to some entrance into the spiritual realm. Because, you know, I think it's weird when I look back and when I first wanted to start and people would say, just leap, the universe will catch you. It has a way. It has a way of following mm -hmm. your soul's path as if it's almost predestined in some way. 
And that is an interesting trust, you know, the leap. And I find myself always on that. You know, my friend Brian Reeves, who's an incredible writer, I remember saying to him, like, how do you always write such profound things? And he said, there's not a moment that when I hit publish that I'm not terrified. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, that edge for me is interesting. You know, um, Create the Love is something that I've been doing for seven years now, maybe a little more than that. And, you know, I find my interest, my interest has always been in, in psychology in general or individual psychology. And I'm really starting to find a very deep fascination for group psychology and the way collectives move and systems move. As I watch what's occurring in the world, I can't help but just be like, how, how are we not seeing certain truths that are so evident in front of us? Why are we so willing to ignore information? And it's not even a hierarchy or anyone's fault. It's that like, it's literally how our nervous system is designed and how fear hijacks us. And why in the last decade or more, do we have such an inability to hold dialogue, such an inability to disagree and still love one another? Why do we have such a low capacity, even for discomfort? Mm. You know, and there's a lot of a lot of thoughts on that. I think we've made this world, in a lot of ways, we've cultivated a social media place that is all about safety. You know, and it's all about safetyism. And there's some obviously some incredible importance to that. I'm not dismissing that, but it's like anything if you overcorrect. You know, I think we see that politically occurring. We see that in just how we're handling coronavirus. And so the edge for me has really been exploring how the individual psychology interacts with group and how group swallows up often individual psychology. And I think we're probably always at an important time, you know, in terms of history. Yeah. I'm sure someone said that when the fax machine came out, you know, but <laughs> I do think we're at a very fascinating time with the overlap of what technology has done to our attention spans and how we connect and how mm -hmm. we relate and really how we have to remember, much like we remember that the map we're given is not necessarily our map. It is till it isn't. Much like we have to remember that technology is not the planet. We are part of a breathing organism and we might just be its microbiome, you know, and at any moment she can decide that we're gone. When you start to have reverence for one another and reverence for yourself, it is impossible to not have reverence for the planet. You know, like if someone has a perspective that I disagree with, I actually can totally understand how they came to it based on their experience. And in any way, I'm still going to be informed by it. If we can approach it that way, like I remember someone saying that anything you dislike in another is something that is something that is unhealed <laughs> within yourself. And I hated that because I think at the time I like disliked what I would have called douchebags with frosted tips. But there was a time that I had frosted tips and puka shell necklace, you know? So it's like I realized that I had rejected the younger version of me and had shame around how I'd shown up at certain times in my life. And so when I saw people showing up mm. that way, I talk shit about them instead of loving that part of me and what made me mm. that way. And I think the same is true now. And so for me, that's really become a, it just, it feels very important. And I feel like I'm leaping onto off of a whole cliff because the other fear of that, and I think this is true of 
any choice that we make that is outside of the map is that like you can get canceled for wanting to talk about those things. You can get, yeah. you will face a barrage yeah. because there's discomfort created in nuance and, and uncertainty and the mystery. And, you know, my commitment has always been to stay in the integrity of my heart, to follow what my soul is calling me to do. So, you know, your, your words won't resonate if you're not doing it. <laughs> so that's the commitment we all have to make. And just in the same way, Mark, that you were talking about the truths of relationship, which is to move toward the discomfort is the only way of healing. What's in the way is the way. Mm-hmm. You know, what a what a profound edge to your own map that you're being called into, even in unknowing that you're seeking to go toward what is in the way as the way for the relational wholeness, even in how we operate as a society. I think to me, it makes so much sense because it's the same call of the prophet, which is honestly how I felt going full circle. Every time I'd open my phone and see a video, I was like, God damn it. It's just like prophetic shit about my own life and my own relationship. So from what I understand, at least in my own studies of spirituality, prophets are not exactly volunteering for the job but we need them all the same. So for all of the ways that you have served that role as a truth teller in the realm of romantic relationships and for all the ways that you will undoubtedly serve that role in a broader uh, way into whatever is calling you into unknowing, thank you so much for having the courage Mm -hmm. to be authentic to your own truth. Thank you so much for having me and trusting me with your audience. And I mean... Getting a word profit, shit. I better tell my junior high and high school. <laughs> no teachers, pressure. Yeah. They'll be like, you just talked a lot in class. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 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 no, I really appreciate your time in, in this space. It means a lot. So we're letting go of the relational maps that we were handed, the ones we've internalized, the ones that are hard to see. And we are trusting in a deeper, courageous way of operating with one another in love. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. I had a bit of a jaw drop moment when Mark said, we're socialized to give our belonging away. Be honest, there's some part of you that's still doing the Jerry Maguire, you complete me, with your partner or your hoped for partner or even as you date. So thinking about the ways that we give our belonging away relationally is such an invitation to grow. One way we can practice that is that every time we feel the temptation to project the complaint outward, say it's your partner and you're like, he just doesn't show up for me in this way. What if we flip it around? Are you showing up for you in this way? When we do that, I think we're able to bring our belonging back home into our own bodies. And that's the place from which we can be generous in our love and spacious in our love, right? Second piece of True North wisdom, until we discover our unconscious as the operating system, almost all the choices we make are programmed and we call it fate. I mean, damn, <laughs> that one really, that one, I mean, if you really sit with that, that's intense, but that's the practice, right? That's the invitation of unknowing. 
to get curious, compassionately curious about the things that are driving us, is to unknow these maps, these unconscious operating maps, and actually begin the adventure of experiencing the terrain of love. Final piece of True North wisdom. I really loved at the very end when Mark spoke about love is creative, <laughs> which if creativity is an unknowing, an adventure into mystery, it requires a new paradoxical capacity for certainty and mystery to coexist. I was really impacted by that because the image I had was of being on a boat sailing into the unknown. So you need the certainty of the boat, right? Like we need the boat to be intact and to not be like falling apart. But the embrace of the mystery of the ever unfolding horizon before us. This is big for me at a personal level. I think I have had the tendency to have a pendulum swinging from one extreme to the other of craving all risk without any security or safety, which was basically assholes, or all security without any adventure. And I think this is where what Mark described as secure attachment was a beautiful kind of tension of both of those things. It's also what I believe to be, you know, the most sacred invitation about relationships is that it mirrors to us the things we don't want to see, but hold the secret to our own healing. And ultimately, through the vehicle of a relationship, if we use the sailboat analogy, it's meant to carry us further into the world, into our own creative becoming. It's meant to animate that adventure. I think there's a lot of cultural uh, pressure to kind of park the boat, to just get nice and cozy in relationship and just sort of like hang out at the dock. But I don't want that. I don't know about you. <laughs> so, you know, tend to the boat, tend to the relationship, but don't forget that it's meant to carry you more deeply into the world with both risk and safety, adventure and security. You can have both of those things. That's not asking for too much. That's it for today's episode. If you're enjoying these conversations, I want to courageously invite you to be in relationship with me and become a member of the Unknowing Community by becoming a patron. Now you all know that I'm an avoidant, so you know how hard it is for me to actually express a need. <laughs> but there you have it. This podcast is brought to you entirely by the generosity of this community of donors and patrons. To learn more about how to become a patron or to give a tax-deductible donation to Unknowing, check out the notes in the show description. The links will take you right where you need to go. And finally, in the words of Rebecca Solnit, Leave the door open for the unknown, the door into the dark. That's where the most important things come from, where you yourself came from and where you will go. <laughs> <laughs>